I'd like for you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. And I want to read beginning at verse 14. Familiar parable of the talents. But I want to talk to you today about how to make a difference with your resources. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to the other two, to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner the one who received the two talents gained two more. But he received the one talent, went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Because you are faithful with a few things, I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Same thing to number two. And the one, verse 24, also had received the one talent, came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and went and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I do not sow, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. For to one, therefore take away the talents from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has more be given. Let me say it again. To everyone who has shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Um, I want to talk to you today about how to make a difference with your time and your treasure and your talents, the big three. Somebody said that the Good Samaritan would have never been remembered if he had only had good intentions. But he had possessions, and he had a servant heart, and he did something to help somebody in need that he didn't even know. I think there is at this parable the germ that from which that statement arises. It is the contrast between two men who did something to make a significant difference and one man who had good intentions. It is the story of men, three men, that some master gave some money, some possessions, Two of these men thought to themselves, I'll, make, I'll use this, these possessions to make a significant difference. And the other failed miserably. It's really a contrast in attitude, 
in how we look at what we have as our possessions. For our attitude toward our possessions, how we see them, makes a big difference in what we do or do not do with them. So really it is a contrast in how we see things or what we think about the things that we possess. Four things I want to mention. First of all, difference makers think manager and not master. Difference makers think that this that I possess, this that I have, I have been given to manage in his absence. I'm sure that you have seen the warning that runs through Scripture of the danger of beginning to think that we are the master of what we have. And God gave this warning especially to his people before they went into the new land. It's found in the book of Deuteronomy and he's warning them. He's saying now, here is the danger when you get in that new land and you live in houses you didn't build and you drink from wells you didn't dig and you eat from vineyards that you didn't plant and you dwell in cities that you did not erect. Here is the danger that you will look at one another and say, look what I've produced. And you will begin to feel that you are the master of your possessions. Difference makers see everything as belonging to someone else. And they see these possessions as an opportunity to invest in the kingdom. And those who don't make a difference hardly ever touch eternity. And they begin to see themselves as being in control. Robert Craning was flying from the west coast to the east coast. And he said it because he was sitting at the back of the airplane, the, the flight attendant bringing the magazines, by the time she got to him, had run out of magazines except one money magazine. He said, frankly, I've never looked inside a money magazine for obvious reasons. But he said, I took it to you know, you know, uh, kill a little time, so to speak. And he said, there was an interesting feature in this money magazine. I found out later it was a feature every issue. They would find some family and they would um, do an analysis of the way they spent their money, their budget. And they bring in these CEOs, these economists, and they would analyze these people's uh, use of their possessions. This particular issue had the story about a man with three children. He's making $80,000 a year. Now, wouldn't you love that? $80,000. Obviously, was not a school teacher or a preacher. All right. <laughs> And he said this, this guy was complaining, was bemoaning the fact that he couldn't make ends meet on his $80,000 and his wife is going to have to go back to work in order to make ends meet, pay bills and put a little aside for college. And he said he had this, they had this budget there and they analyzed it. In this budget was this humongous mortgage payment. They obviously lived in a huge house and they leased two luxury cars. There was a huge lease payment. It just went down the list. But he said I, I was interested was by the, by the uh, bottom item on the list, contributions, $800. About 1% or less than what the man made annually. And he said, I thought to myself, I know why he's having a problem making ends meet. He thinks himself a master of his money instead of a manager of it. Now I want you to compare that with a man, with, with that story with, with Robert Cam. Now Robert Cam is a wealthy 
businessman who owns a plastics industry, and a few years ago, he began to tithe 10% of his income. And he gradually increased that tithe to 50% of his income. Now I'm going in and out, so I'm going over here. I'm gonna use this mic right here. Y'all can tell I'm going in and out, right? Mostly out. Okay, now I'm gonna stand here, although I, uh, I'm, on, I'm not gonna uh, need to do it except for this mic. Where was I? Robert Cam, Stanley Cam, has a book entitled God Owns My Business. And he told about giving 10% of his income and gradually increasing that to 50%. And one day he went down to, the, to his attorney and he signed a document giving his entire income to the Lord. He took a salary for himself and for his employee, his son-in-law who was his partner, and the rest of that after paying his employees went to God, literally. And there is a significant paragraph in this book. I want to read it to you. It says, We have America's largest inventory of industrial plastics. Our catalog sits on the purchaser's desk of just about every major corporation and thousands of smaller businesses. I love to make money. It's a great adventure for me, sending out catalogs and watching the business come in. At five o'clock every night, our loading dock is a beehive of activity. My son-in-law and I watch our growth chart with mutual delight. But to me, without question, the biggest business in the world and life's greatest and most rewarding adventure is to help people discover, as my own family has discovered and many people in our company have discovered, that what it, what it means to have a valid and vital relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. To me, making money becomes pointless unless one's objective is to give it away to help others. Now I ask you this morning, whose shoes would you rather be in? The man making $80,000 who can't make ends meet because he is a master of his money, or the man who is the president of, a, of this business who because he manages his money is able to give it away. Difference makers think, manage, not master. Second, difference makers think, contribute, not compare. Now, I don't know what happened to this one talent man, why he buried his money or his talent, but I suspect that a part of it was because he compared himself to the five talented man. Now someone has suggested that a talent in that day was worth about a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars. Big time money in that day, big time money now. And he began to think if he thought anything at all and he knew this other person, these other two men, I think he did. He's thinking to himself, well this man has seventy-five hundred dollars and I have a thousand dollars. And he's told us that he has given each according to his ability. I know what he thinks about me. He thinks I'm a one talented ability person. If that's what he thinks about me, perhaps he thought, I'll show him, I'll just 
bury his talent. Difference makers think, contribute, not compare. Now, Charles Barkley has a marvelous statement. In fact, he has three statements about this very thing. First of all, he says that it is not the talent that matters, it's how you use it. Second, reward for work well done is more work to do. He said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful. that would ever come in life would be for you to ever reach the place where God could no longer use you. Third thing Barclay said about it was is that the punishment, punishment comes only to those who do not try. You know my favorite character in this parable? It's the too talented man. The reason I like this guy is because he obviously was not jealous of the five talented man. No envy there. And he was not pulled down by the pessimistic negative attitude of the one talented man. He didn't compare himself to them. He just was faithful to what he possessed. And what do you think about that five talented man? You think it ever crossed his mind to think this? I could put two talents in my pocket. I would have three talents left and I would be way ahead of the two talented man. He didn't think that. I think he understood that the master requires a five-talent return from a five-talent investment. And what I mean by that is this, is that God doesn't judge us compared to what we have or do compared to others. He judges us on the basis of what we do with regard to our potential. Let me ask you a question. On the basis of what you have been given, your talent, your ability, and your opportunity. Are you living up to your full potential? Difference makers think, contribute, not compare. Third, difference makers think reaping and not relinquishing. Now verse 19 has an interesting uh, little uh, catch to it. It says in verse 19, Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them, so that what they did was on the basis of that time in the future where there would be a bottom line drawn and the settling of accounts what they did had to do with the time when they would either be judged wanting or rewarded it's all about it's all about the future isn't it now on this farm where I grew up we did row cropping I mean we didn't plant a lot of creep uh, creep we didn't plant a lot of wheat, but we planted row crops. My daddy planted a lot of milo. We called it maize back then. It's called milo now, and it's seed that he sold for, uh, for cattle food, for animal food. And I remember one year, my job was to, uh, uh, you know, pull these, go in with a truck and get this grain that this custom combiner came to, to harvest and, and take it to the, to, to the town, to the uh, elevator. 
And my dad told me, he said, now, Gerald, today I want you to uh, wait uh, before you go to town with a load of grain because I may want to keep some of it. And he went out to the custom combine person and he said, now I want you to make, make a swath through this part of the field. So he did. He went and he reached in the hopper, that's the bin where that grain from the combine went. And he held some of that grain in his hands and he, he, he looked at it and he put some in his mouth and he, he tested and he looked around. And then he sent him over to another section in the field and he, he, he combined a swath there. And then another, and finally my father said, this is what I want right here. When he fills this truck up with grain, take it to the barn. Now, I took this truck out to, to our barn and we unloaded that grain in the barn for next year. And what my father did was, is he selected what he considered to be the best grain to plant for the next harvest to come. And he didn't, you know, I didn't hear him complain, man, this, I'm really wasting bucks here. I, I mean, this is worth a lot of money. I didn't hear him complain about that at all. In fact, he had this kind of a, a hopeful and, and enthusiastic expectancy about him. And I can remember him talking to my mom about the fact, you know, if, if everything goes well next year and, and God gives us good, good climate and good weather, we'll make a bumper crop. And he was taking that which was a part of this harvest and he was planning for the next one. It's all about tomorrow, isn't it? How much is tomorrow worth to you? I want you to imagine one of these little children, these little girls that we have running around in our church from time to time. I want you to imagine her standing here on this platform to me and people are bidding for her and the bids come hot and heavy. The distiller wants to make her dependent upon his bottle. And the drug dealer wants to make her addicted to his needle. And the clothing industry wants to make her a clothes horse. And the entertainment world wants to make her a customer. And the sporting world wants to make her a fan. And Madison Avenue wants to make her an ever restless consumer. How much are you willing to bid to make her a Christian? How much is tomorrow worth? There's a pathetic account in the 38th chapter of the book of Isaiah where Hezekiah the king was dying and he prayed that God would extend his life. And God extended his life for 15 years. But it wasn't long until Isaiah the prophet came and told him, things are looking bad. The house of Judah is coming down. And this was Hezekiah's response. Ted will paraphrase. Well, it won't matter. Peace and security will exist in my lifetime. You know what he was saying? What difference does it matter if the house of Judah comes down? I'll be dead and gone by then anyway. What a selfish, self-centered, egocentric way to live. But what's the future worth to you? Simon Peter came running up to Jesus one time and said, Lord, we followed you. We've given up our families. We've given up everything to follow you. What's it worth to us? And Jesus said to Simon Peter, there's not a person alive who gives up family and possessions to follow me, but what will receive much more in this life and in the life to come. You don't waste it. 
And there is this beautiful story of the woman coming to Jesus with an alabaster box of perfume, priceless perfume. It was probably the life savings of this woman. And she broke that perfume, anointed his feet, and Matthew said that she wiped his feet with her hair. Now what was on Jesus is on her. For what she lavished upon Jesus now comes back to her. She smells just like him. And so Stephen Alford tells about the time he was preaching at Keswick Convention in, in London. And a missionary there was there to give his testimony. He said, I've been a missionary in the northern coast of Africa for 27 years. Let me give you my testimony. He said, let me tell you how I got the call of God. He said, he turned around, he looked at Stephen Alford sitting on the platform. He said, well, this man was preaching a sermon on missions 27 years ago, and I heard him preach, and I felt the call of God upon my life when this man preached. So I went to Africa 27 years ago, and I just want you to know that this man was responsible for me hearing the call of God. And his lavishing Offered lavished his message upon the congregation. And 27 years later, it came back to him. For difference makers don't think about relinquishing. Look at all I'm going to have to give up. They think about reaping. One last thought, please. Difference makers think Venture, not vigilance. I don't know why this guy buried this talent in the ground. Maybe he buried it so he could sit there and watch, watch it. <laughs> Some people watch over their possessions like a grave. When I was pastoring out in West Texas, I was in, out there they had wakes. You know what a wake is? It's where people sit up around the clock. At a, with a body, dead body. It was my job to line up folks to do wakes. And I didn't feel like I could ask somebody to stay up at those rough hours of the night if I wasn't willing to do it. So I, I took the two to four shift. And I was sitting up with this body one night, true story. And I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing here? This guy's not going anywhere. <laughs> Nobody's going to come and get this body. And I think it, some of us do the same thing with our time and our talent and our treasure. We put it where we can watch it. And what we think is vigilance, like someone watching over a grave. Do you know what Jesus is saying in this parable? If, you, if you're not awake, get it up. Watch this. Get awake. What he's thinking, what he's saying is this. I'm not just talking about the value of your possessions and what you do with them. I'm saying that if you follow me, it means that you're going to have to take a lifetime risk. May I ask you a very personal question? If you knew this morning 
that if you gave a tithe to God, if you had a guarantee written in blood from heaven that you would not miss that 10%, you would get that 10% back some way and you'd never miss it. Would you be a tither? You would. Every single one of you would if you had a guarantee. Why do we need guarantees? The gospel was born in risk. Somebody called the church a couple of weeks ago after I kind of, true story, kind of talked about greed and tithing. I think he was kidding. He called at noon, would not leave his name and said, tell the pastor that if you go to my church, and he named the church, you don't have to give but 5%. And it's a lot cheaper, underline lot. <laughs> it's a lot cheaper. Now, I think he was kidding. But I've thought about it a lot since I got that note from one of the secretaries. Who in this town wants to live that way? Where are the risk takers? A hundred and fifty thousand people this year will get in a rubber raft and shoot the rapids on the Colorado River. And a hundred thousand people this last year took up uh, hang gliding. They strapped on wings and jumped off cliffs or went bungee jumping. Can you believe that one? Did you know that every day 4,000 people, new people, enter the stock market? And in Denver, Colorado, they, the, the teachers out there spend their lunch hour bringing stockbrokers in to tell them how to Gamble with penny stock. And last year in Texas alone, billions with a B were spent on the lottery. People gambling that they might get rich in a moment of time. This world is full of risk takers until we come to church. Where are the risk takers? This gospel was born in risk. George Buttrick says in one of his little books that there is an abbey off the coast of France called Our Lady of Risk. Guess who that, was, who that commemorates? Guess who is Our Lady of Risk? You answer me. Mary, Our Lady of Risk. And they named an abbey by that because they felt like that this little girl, not 14 years of age, was history's greatest gambler. And she gambled on the word that she would bear a son without the help of a man. And she took the ultimate risk with child and without man. And she risked Rejection and even stoning. Our Lady of Risk. And you say, well, she had to do it. No, she didn't. 
Because when the angel came to her with the announcement, you know what her response was? Be it unto thy handmaiden according to, I, according to thy word. Here's my body. Go for it. Where are the risk takers? And the greatest gambler of all was, the, was Jesus himself. And this was his gamble. If I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And Stuart Kennedy picked up on that theme with these words. They watched him there, the soldiers did. And while, he played, while they played with dice, he made his sacrifice and died on a cross to rid a world of sin. He was a gambler too, my Christ. He took his life and threw it for a world redeemed. What would this world be like without folks taking risk? Whitehead was right, I think, when he said, civilization without adventure is in full decay. You are in full decay if you have to have guarantees. Some men die by shrapnel. Some go down in flames. But most men die inch by inch who play their little games. Now I want to give you three applications. I want to tell you what you can do with this sermon. You probably already have some ideas <laughs> what you'd like to do with this sermon. Three applications. I want to ask you to do this. I want, to, I want to ask you to spend one day in your checkbook. One day in your checkbook. And find out and see how much your gift, your, the way you spend it goes for Christ's cause. And then I want to ask you to spend one day in your date book and see how much time you are giving to those things that really matter, your church, your children, your family. And I want you to spend one day in your passbook and determine how much, how much you are using this God-given talent you possess in a God-given way. And those difference makers are the people who have more than just good intentions. They're people who have resources and a servant heart who are willing to do something for somebody they don't even know. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, There are some of us, five, some two, at least one, talent. Open our eyes to what we can do and be because of what we have. And let us this, this very day give to you that which belongs to you. For I pray in Jesus' name,
for his sake. I'm going to ask you this morning, maybe there's somebody here who just say, in your heart of hearts, I want to be a difference maker with what I possess. I have so much in talent, time, and treasure. And to be willing to say that in your heart, maybe some of you would need to say it publicly. Maybe some of you would need to join, come and join this church. Whatever God impresses on your heart to do, if not now, when? If not where, here, where? Would you, would you do what God wants you to do with what God has laid on your heart? While we stand to sing, would you do it?